0: Hello and welcome to the April edition of Voices of Experience, the National Speakers Association's audio magazine. I'm Camille Valvo and, well, how are we doing? The 0809 team is assembling our last editions and it's not too late for your ideas, feedback and wish list to be considered. You can drop me a line or any of the producers at NSA Next, LinkedIn or Facebook and we look forward to hearing from you. By the way, did you know there are less than 80 sleeps until our 2009 annual convention? We'll be keeping it real in Phoenix, Arizona, and you'd be mad to miss it. In the meantime, VOE is keeping it real with Dr. Joe Somerville and his segment, The Real Deal.
1: I am joined this month by Aldona Ambler, CMC, CSP, who is known as the growth strategist. This month's segment is going to focus on consulting and finding out ways to grow your consulting practice. I'd like to reference, Aldona, a piece you did in the Speaker magazine, I think it was a couple of years ago, where you asked the question, are you a real or an imitation consultant? Can you just <laughs> give us the highlights of that piece?
2: Uh, I'm laughing because that's a provocative title, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I got some interesting uh, emails and calls as a result of it as well. But uh, that's the whole idea is trying to make people think about um, you have a conscious decision of are you going to have a consulting practice but not be practicing on clients. What
1: were some of the tests to decide if you really were a real consultant?
2: Well, some of it is in the preparation, you know, has somebody done, uh, accomplished something in their life so that they have life experiences that warrant being able to give advice to folks? I mean, consulting is about advice. It's not, it's not the same as coaching and it's not like cheerleading, you know, people are expecting you to have some content. So have you earned the right to do that, just like um, we're talking about content and earning the platform? So sometimes that's earned from degrees, sometimes it's earned from being an apprentice, sometimes it's earned from specific uh, seminars and courses and instruction on how to be a consultant. But I think people need to be aware that they, they need to earn the right to give advice to other people.
1: As you know, there are many different successful business models in our profession. I'd like for you to think about someone who might primarily think of him or herself as a speaker or a trainer. Why would that person want to consider adding consulting to the line of services that they offer? Besides it just being another income stream, what would be some of the advantages and some of the synergies to adding consulting to the mix?
2: Well, I think that's um, the primary reason people do it is they, they think that they're going to be able to get a little more money. And, and I personally have observed that clients are really in need of a range of services and if they have a trusted advisor they have somebody that they see as a hub and a source of solutions uh, they're probably going to be asking can you find us a technologist can you find us a, a web designer can you find us a marketing company we get put in that position quite a bit. And that's one form of consulting is just, you know, are you a hub that can find resources? So sometimes it's easy to be an extension. You know, you're declaring that you're a hub and you get paid to be that kind of a hub. So sometimes it's not complicated. That's one of the reasons that people would do it. Another reason is that the complex lives of the clients, they have multiple problems, and just doing a speech or just doing a piece of training won't make the difference, won't make enough of a difference, and the consultant, you know, the, the speaker can feel it. There were, a lot of us are compelled to change the world. If we could go deeper, if we could take a little longer, if we could affect more pieces of what's going on in particularly some of the business organizations, there's more satisfaction for, the, for everybody.
1: So what I hear you saying is that in addition to it being just another income stream, it really provides a way to better serve your client.
2: Yep, and and I find for a lot of us, it gives us a sense of meaning and purpose to what we're doing. There are some dissatisfied speakers. You know, they've been up there on the platform for a while, and you look around, you say, what's the meaning of all this? Where is it going? What difference am I making? If you slow down a little bit and actually are focused on the customer, not just the speech, you realize that if you you know, you know ask them some questions and do more of a needs assessment, listen to what kind of struggles they have and listen to what they're wanting to do and how it's not coming together in a lot of situations, you're going to feel more comfortable, you're going to feel more happy, you're going to feel more satisfied. And, yeah, you'll have more money, but I think it's more of a you're gonna be making more of a difference if you slow down enough to do a little bit more for the customers.
1: Well, those are some reasons people might wanna think about adding consulting, but let's shift our focus just a bit now to people who may already be doing consulting as part of their business model. And since you're known as the growth strategist, tell us some ways that people can go about growing their already existing consulting practice.
2: I think the biggest deterrent to growth in consulting for a speaker that I've seen talking to so many NSA members, has been that they have an image of schlepping up and down the turnpike, that they're going to be, you know, their time is going to get eaten up. And, you know, just like some people have been trying to get out of training and they don't want to be stuck in the classroom, there's a negative image in their minds. Well, behind that negative image is the premise that they are, they're personally the answer to every problem and that they have to do the billable work. So one of the, one of the growth strategies is to image a company rather than just an incorporated career you can have a consulting division. It's a mindset that changes, you know, you're behind you, everything. If you're actually trying to create a division of your business instead of just more work for yourself.
1: What I hear you saying is that a lot of people have this, I think you called it a negative net image.
2: Yeah, well, there's some people that in NSA, mostly we talk about the careers. Us, you know, I, Joe, Aldana, as speakers, and we're talking about our time, you know, so the minutes that you're doing consulting and the minutes that you're speaking and the minutes that you're doing product development and the minutes that you're marketing and the minutes that you're selling and you run out of minutes. And the mindset that can change to the entrepreneurial part of us, how could we create a business? Now, it's not necessarily employees, and I want to, if you give me some time, we'll we'll get to the difference between a subcontractor and employee. If you change into, it's a business question, growth strategies are about how to grow the business. It isn't just about your minutes, it's about what the business can be done. What can your business provide for your clients? So if your clients need, let's say they need lots and lots of training, you don't necessarily have to be the only trainer that's up in front of the room. So that's the first thing is the mindset. And then the second thing is growth is about leverage. And you're leveraging you know, the marketplaces what the different target markets are needing. There may be an industry that you can specialize in. There may be geography that you're looking at for convenience and accessibility. When when I was growing my business, I started out as a solo. There was a five-year period of time that I had a, a one partner, a 50-50 partnership. Then there was a period of time when we grew to 123 full-time consultants in six offices. That's a geography. Graphic expansion, kind of a model, went through an ESOP where 33 people bought it out over a period of time and looped back to a solo practice. So I've I've seen multiple models myself, and there's a mindset that's different in each one. you the first thing you're leveraging is the kinds of markets that you're that you're help you're helping, and the second thing is what's your decision on how you're leveraging people, people behind you, you know, which kind of subcontractors you're working with, which kind of employees that you might work with in NSA. There is so much expertise. There are people who are specialists in things that you you yourself might not know how to do, but your clients need. So your consulting company could be the, the source of solutions through referring those folks. So one growth strategy would be referrals to friends in NSA, referrals to friends in the Institute of Management Consultants, referrals to friends in in a number of different associations where you've done the research to make sure they would know what they're doing. But and and growth strategy wise, you know, you ask you ask yourself just like another company would, do you have some people that you might do a a joint venture with where you're going to go after a new kind of target market that you couldn't do on your own, and you've noticed that there's there's a strong need. So, for example, if your company is great at strategic planning or marketing or the executive level, but you're not as good with the technology piece, but you know a company with great expertise in that, you combine and you create a company that can do strategic level technology. And you go after a marketplace that, you know, where you couldn't have done it with, you know, you wouldn't want the overhead, you wouldn't want all the commitment, but you can share some costs of marketing, you can share some costs of people and go after it. And you can have a joint venture that is a time-limited, focused effort between you.
1: So you have a company, per se, that's involved in a joint venture, but it's, Mm -hmm. as you say, time-limited, so it might just be for one particular project or for a few projects rather than an ongoing long-term
2: Yeah, I like the joint ventures that are aimed at a specific marketplace. Maybe it's for larger accounts. I had one client that had 16 companies go together in a strategic alliance because the technology and the marketplace and the the length of the buying cycle, it took so long to get these great big projects. Um, This was a way for them to go after huge projects, compete with the big guys without the overhead, without all the, of the expense. And frankly, because they were doing it together, there was an excitement. There was a sense of collegial um, camaraderie. Uh, this kind of business consulting and speaking can be very isolating and frankly, I think the enemy of entrepreneurship is isolation. So one way to you know, leverage other people is to have a strategic alliance that's exciting enough that pulls you in a new direction that you might not have gone before and it's exposed enough that you're, you and your friends celebrate the successes and, and keep going. But you don't have the burden of having to manage all the pieces every day.
1: Aldana Ambler, growth strategist. Thank you very much.
2: I can't
0: emphasise enough how privileged I've been to be chatting with industry experts, role models and icons on your behalf, particularly with my Take 10 with Camille segment. This edition brought home one of the key tenets of our theme, Keep It Real, relationships. Joining me is Australian Certified Speaking Professional, CPAE Lisa McGuinness-Smith. So, Lisa, welcome to Voices of Experience. Absolutely fantastic to have you here. Thanks, Camille. So, tell me, a book or a product that made a difference to your business?
3: You know, I really think it's beyond a book or a product. I think it's more the person behind the books and the product for me. Mm. Um, Zig Ziglar, you know, who's just written copious amounts of product, books, and I love his books and I love one of his latest books, Better Than Good, but truly I think the fact is that the man has made the difference for me beyond the product because I see him as a role model. Um, I love the fact that he's a lifelong learner, and every time I'm reading one of the new books, I can see that the student is still in full operation. And I love the way he adapts to his circumstances. You know, he's in his 80s now and he's had it fall, and yet out of tough times, he comes up with something new, recreates himself, and in that whole mix he tends to build his success with his family and shares all of his life with his family, including you know, people um, like his son-in-laws and daughters-in-law, which I think is a brilliant way to live if you can have all your family on board together.
0: What a lovely response, Lisa, and you're right. It really is about having family included, and I know you do that in your business, which is great. All right, so moving on to some tips, what about a platform tip?
3: Well, I think one of my most important ones that I continue to have reinforced over the years is listen to what the audience is saying and how they're responding. Don't listen to that little voice in your head that, oh, you didn't say it quite the way you'd planned or that didn't work the way you thought. Let your listeners be the judge. You know, when it's all over, don't beat yourself up with negative thoughts. You know, don't be that self-absorbed. Leave the result in peace and knowing that if the audience is happy, you can be happy.
0: I like that. All right. Well, while we're on tips, how about a marketing tip that's worked well for you?
3: Well, it's interesting. We just had a little instance recently, and Colin and I said it came back to, for us marketing, people are more important than bookings. Now, of course, we all want the bookings, but we've had a client, a major client with very large conferences offshore, cancel twice. And each time, you know, we had a contract and they said, you know, would you like to keep your refund? And we said, no, you know, we're just going to um, accept that sometime in the future, you will want to book us. And you know what? I keep reminding myself, marketing is about being here for the long term. not relying on any one client and you know that client has just come back again and said all right I knew it was meant to be in March and we cancelled twice but it's back on it's in July and you're at the top of the list and I thought yes it's about relationships isn't it so we're very much keeping in relationship with people because we want to be part of their team when we're on the team and at the conference
0: yes I love that in hindsight what do you wish you'd known about the business before you got started
3: Oh, I definitely wish I'd understood branding. You know, if I'd just known to go deeper rather than broader, it would have saved me from doing too many topics for too many clients in too many different directions. And I think over 24 years, you can really see how sometimes you switch down a direction because, you know, there's a lot of demand there. But in actual fact, I love the fact now I go deeper and deeper and deeper into my topic. I love doing it every time. And I never feel like I'm scrambling, you know, to update myself on one of the topics that isn't at the very top of my passion list. So, That would be my number one thing. And I'm constantly learning about branding now and how to do it better.
0: Good. Good for you. So still the student as well. That's lovely to hear after 24 years of speaking.
3: What keeps you up at night
0: in your business?
3: (laughs) My husband says nothing keeps me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I have two speeds. I'm full on and I'm dead stop. And when I go to bed, I go to bed and I leave the result. You know, I can switch off. I really have the philosophy, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, it just takes a little faith and everything seems brighter in the morning. And I have just determined to not let myself worry about things. Great. All right.
0: So now we look forward. What do you see as the biggest challenge for speakers in the future?
3: You know, I think the biggest challenge is going to be staying fresh and building strong family and marriage while they're building their business. I think the demands in this current marketplace and with the financial fear factor, people sometimes go into panic mode and they start thinking they have to take every single job that's there. And sometimes I think that they sacrifice too much time that their children should get, you know, for one more booking. You know, really, I'm encouraging my peers, look, know when enough is enough and don't live in fear of not getting another booking. Because, you know, when you have a slow period, enjoy the break. Live in faith, not in fear, and actually know that there is a cycle in speaking. You know, it's always undulating. Personal business takes a little bit of faith, doesn't it, to just operate from six-month period to six-month period. And I truly believe if people work more on their family and their marriage and keep their relationships strong, then what they'll find is they are people that are worth learning from and people will love to book them over the long term.
0: And that comes right back to your marketing tip, which is about relationships, isn't it?
3: You can see I'm a real relationships girl, can't you? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Well, it's been
0: absolutely fantastic speaking with you. I appreciate your time on VOE and we look forward to seeing you at a conference sometime soon.
3: Thanks, Camille. See you soon.
0: Thanks so much, Lisa, and also for identifying branding as an area you wished you'd known more about. Well, I thought it was appropriate to segue then to this next segment, creating an authentic brand with producer
4: Leslie Everett. Hi, this is Leslie Everett. This month on VOE, we're going to look at the discovery stage of our brand or personal brand. As speakers, we all have topics that we know well, we present well, we present regularly, but do our audiences really get what we think they get when we speak? Do we take the time to find out whether they take away the messages that we think they get? Do we take time to think about what they think they're going to get before we even get on the stage? Discovering our brand is really important if we're going to be congruent, authentic with it and consistent with the message we project and make ourselves memorable and remarkable so that people can talk about us and recommend us easily. I don't know about you, but I can think of a lot of CSPs who I know well, their name is well known to us, but can we really define what it is in a nutshell, succinctly, what they talk about? Well, today I'm joined by Sean Weaver. Sean is is based in in Dublin, Ireland. I've known Sean for many years. And a while ago, we were sat down chatting. And one of the things I said to Sean is that everybody in PSA UK knows who Sean Weaver is. And when you ask them, they say he's a great guy, uh, speaks well. But they didn't really know what it was that Sean talked about. So I thought it'd be great to have Sean join me today to talk about the discovery of his brand because it has been actually an incredible move from that chat we had a couple of years ago. So welcome, Sean. Hi, Leslie. Let's go back to that chat we had two, two years ago now, I think, wasn't it? When I said to you, PSA, don't really know what it is that you talk about. What, did, what happened at that stage after we had that conversation?
5: Well, I think that was a pretty defining moment. It was interesting the comment that you made that people know who you are but they don't know what you do. Which then got me thinking, well, if people that I spend a lot of my professional time with and have a lot of professional respect for don't actually know what I do, then what is it my clients think that I do? So it, it uh, started a period of pretty intense reflection over the last couple of years and some significant changes as a result.
4: So what have we ended up now? If we jump two years ahead, what have we actually ended up with with the brand? We can take a step back after that and look at how you did it.
5: Well, the, the brand now is Rebel in a Business Suit. I
4: just love that because you see that's you that really is you
5: and, and that actually evolved out of me going right back to basics and thinking about what it is I do and what it is I specialize in and I realized my primary work is helping to evolve people to a higher level of being to actualize themselves but in a business concept so I was an evolver or an awakener, if you will. And then I realized, how do I do that? And I realized that I did through relationships. So really, I was evolving individuals and organizations through relationships. So if you take or and put it in front of evolution, you get revolution. So <laughs> right. I became the rebel in a business suit. I have all the contrarian ideas and new ways of looking at things, but I do it within the corporate environment. So the rebel is the creative piece. The suit is the process. It's about bringing the two together.
4: So what you do is help executives to release or recognize and then perhaps release that inner rebel that perhaps we all have, but we don't recognize. And so you have a system or a methodology to help people do that.
5: Absolutely. I mean, not only that, it's awakening them to the fact that they're more than what they think they are. And then taking them to that stage through various seminars, through keynotes and through the coaching work that I do a lot of.
4: Okay, so that makes sense. But it's not just something you came up with because you thought it sounded good and was going to work. So it was based on very much you being a rebel yourself. So take us through the process that led you to the Rebel in a Business Suit brand and why it worked so well for
5: you. Well, I guess actually, in fact, uh, I mean, being a rebel is in my DNA. It's all a part of my family. (laughs) And as I say in my keynote, I mean, one of my first... uh, forefathers was, a, was a, a king's enemy in 1535. In Ireland, that's a good thing, you know, because it was usually <laughs> an English king. Um, and in 1680, or whatever the time was, we had another relative who was a pirate in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. And then my grandfather fought in the, um, the revolution of 1916 uh, in Dublin. So it's all part of the family heritage, if you will. So I'm just starting a whole different kind of revolution and a whole different kind of age.
4: <laughs> That's great, so there's a real background there that gives you that. What about your personal background because isn't there some, haven't you uh, studied martial arts for a while as well, that gives another edge to this?
5: Yeah, I am a background in uh, martial arts for quite a long time, a fought down black belt status in a Japanese form called ninjutsu, which is a ninja type style of training. Um, you know, a very strong spiritual background in terms of Celtic mysticism and, and that sort of stuff right. so I have a slightly different way of looking at the world in that respect and that's also part of my, my mother's family heritage as well so there's a lot mixed up to make me a very confused individual <laughs>
4: um, Well that, I think that see, we've got a very clear background then that gives the Rebel in a Business suit brand the real authenticity that it needs but then how did you start out on the process of saying well I've got the brand now Rebel in a Business suit is great that's going to get me memorable people are going to think well what's all that about it's interesting in the coaching that you you were known for what parts of that could you bring into the rebel in a business suit brand how did it all then come together with the areas of business expertise that you've got
5: well part of the development of the idea of being a business revolutionary was actually realizing that a lot of my work even though I worked a lot in sales and worked a lot in, in leadership was really about the area of evolution, which is my core work in coaching, which I've been doing for 12 years. Um, But it was really about relationships, business relationships, so understanding the psychological and emotional dynamics. So what I did was I rebranded all the workshops that I did with that in mind. So my pure focus now about being the rebel in a business suit is about releasing your inner rebel and then learning how to connect with the people around you through powerful and effective contemporary and softer styles of communication, which is relevant to the modern networked age, basically.
4: Okay, I get that. Would you say then that having defined the brand and it was clear for you and then, of course, it was clear for everybody else and it was very much based on your authenticity and congruent with who you are, would you say that having that definition allowed you to really refine the system that you were using in the coaching and the speaking that you do and the methodologies you use?
5: I think it didn't really refine the system per se, because I, I use a very structured methodology which I designed mm. some years ago. What it did do was made a huge difference in terms of my speaking, because my speaking four years ago when I spoke on the main stage of PSA would have been a, almost a workshop type style, which, yes. which a lot of us would have still Feels done. It's great. remembered it. But, but it was still a workshop. It wasn't a keynote. It wasn't something you would say, that's it. And The last two years have actually taken me from that stage four years ago when I was speaking in that kind of manner. To very much a keynote. So, this year's keynote was uh, Rebel in a Business Suit, you know, how to succeed in the new world of work. And that was a keynote. That was bringing in my personal background, my historical background, talking about the revolutionary times that we live in, and making it not just inspirational, but message orientated. So, really, where the biggest impact has been has been, A, defining the keynote in such a way that it has powerful impact when it works with people. I think you saw that at this year's convention.
4: Yes, very much on the main stage at PSA this year. It was great. It was a big jump from four years ago, yeah.
5: And, And the second thing is that by defining a brand for myself, it's given me absolute clarity about the markets that I want to work in and the services I want to bring into that space and how I use keynoting to leverage that.
4: So really, in a nutshell, then, what we're saying is it's really helped you define and refine your keynote more than anything else when you're on stage. Well, it's,
5: it's helped to find the keynote, but then it's also allowed all of the other stuff that I've done to come under a single banner yes and then be provided as almost a single solution or or to come under the rebel in a business suit sort of concept I can be their rebel in a business suit everybody else wants to be a rebel as well and most of us are we just don't know it yet um, <laughs> and really my job then is to use all the stuff that I've learned over the last 14 years in this business to uh, help people really set in a rebel and welcome them to the revolution
4: so what you're saying is you could have lots of spin-off products that we all now need as speakers that are under the Rebel in a Business Suit brand. So that helps to position you even more as a keynoter, to have passive income. But it's something that's exciting. People want to see more about what this Rebel stuff really is. Yeah. And
5: actually, that is the other development. There's, there's a lot of products I've now developed in the last uh, six, eight months, specifically under that brand. And it's making a significant difference in terms of my perspective, the importance of information in the business that I'm in.
4: Fantastic. So branding has helped you go from a a great um, main stage session four years ago at PSA to a fantastic keynote at this year's PSA. What's next? Main stage at NSA? Are they ready for an Irish revolution, do you think?
5: I think it's time to bring a revolution to the people.
4: (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks, John.
5: You're welcome
0: certified speaking professional Sam Silverstein has his eyes wide open as he travels the land in his role as our national president.
6: One of the best parts of being the president of the National Speakers Association is having the opportunity to travel to so many chapter and federation member meetings. It's a wonderful treat to catch up with old friends and to meet so many new people. And I get to hear what's on everyone's mind. I hear lots of positive things, and I have to admit, I hear a few negatives as well. What I find interesting is that I can hear a positive and a negative about the same issue from two different people. This leads me to believe that perspective comes into play. Where we are and where we come from certainly impacts how we interpret any given situation. I've heard about how open, inclusive, and giving the members are at NSA, and I've heard how some people aren't approachable and that there are cliques. I've heard that people share and give away so much, and I've heard of members preying on others, usually newer members, trying to sell something that you can get free anyway through building relationships at NSA. So it leaves me looking for the bottom line. I know that any group of people is going to be diverse. They're going to be tall people, short people, outgoing people, shy people, considerate people, and unfortunately, yes, rude people. When you have an organization of almost 3,700 members, there will be a lot of diversity. I know that when I walk into a room at NSA, if I see one of my best friends, I'm going to go over and sit with him or her. Does that mean we have a clique? I guess that's up to everyone to interpret. Sometimes people are in conversations and they aren't approachable. Sometimes we just need to find the right time. In my over 16 years of NSA membership, I've met so many people and built so many relationships that I truly believe we have one of the best associations in the world. We really are a caring and sharing group as our founder, Cavett Robert, envisioned. And yes, there are some people who may prey on others, but it is up to each and every one of us to do our due diligence when entering into a business agreement. Always check at least a half a dozen references before doing business and make sure all agreements are designed for win-win relationships. Check with your NSA buddies and find out what their experiences have been or what's the talk in the grapevine about a certain supplier. We all want our NSA experience to be the very best possible, but ultimately we're responsible to make sure we're doing the right things so we can get to the right places. In the end, we must be accountable for our results. Have a great month. And keep it real.
7: It's Randy Pennington. I'm back to invite you to join us at the Cantina Laredo Restaurant in Scottsdale, Arizona on Sunday, July 19th for The Party with a Purpose. Interactive entertainment, Latin dancing, tequila tasting, Mexican buffet, and casual networking. Go to MyNSA.org to purchase your tickets. The Foundation
8: Fiesta. It's muy Caliente.
0: Next up, we hear certified speaking professional and segment producer Glenn Capelli scratching around for your creativity hit this month.
8: Hello, this is Glenn Capelli again with ideas and creativity for design and presentation. We've been looking at the many lands of smart, the multiple intelligences model of Professor Howard Gardner, and now we look at the analytical smarts. A lot of people believe that creativity is not about an analytical mindset, and certainly we need other kinds of minds in there to be creative, but I often think that some of the most creative people have got a creative discipline. They've got a way of approaching creativity that's actually quite analytical. Perhaps they are constant scratches. Scratching? There was a man who got into a London cab and in casual conversation asked the driver, How have you been? The driver responded that he was working hard. In fact, it felt like he was working eight days a week. This man had never heard the phrase before and etched it in his mind. When he arrived at his friend's place, the destination of his lift, he shared the phrase. Right, said his mate. And then the two pals sat down together and started writing, Ooh, I need your lovin', eight days a week. This is one story of how Paul McCartney and John Lennon got to write and record eight days a week in 1964. Another story says that the phrase eight days a week was a Ringoism, a phrase used by Ringo Starr to complain about the Beatles' workload. Whether it was a shooting star quote or a court phrase in a cab, Paul McCartney has an ear for melody as well as an ear for a phrase. He picked up on a line from everyday conversation and when he and John Lennon, then turned it into magic. Another songwriting man was in need of a good idea because the operettas he and his writing partner were creating had started to lose favour. To clear his mind and kick started in a different way, he went to a London exhibition of Japanese culture. The man was W.S. Gilbert and the exhibition inspired an idea that became the Mikado, an idea that then inspired his writing partner Arthur Sullivan to compose arguably his greatest musical score. The American dance choreographer Twyla Tharp describes the process of finding an idea as scratching. She believes most creative folk are not simply hit by a thunderbolt of an idea or an apple falling from a tree but that most creative folk are scratchers. Scratching, the thing you do when you can't wait for the thunderbolt to come and hit you. Scratching is digging through everything in order to find something. Imagine a woman splashing hot black wax onto panes of glass, then looking for possibilities in the way the wax forms patterns. That's how leading Australian contemporary artist Lindy Lee scratches. In the ABC series Artscape Artists at Work, she describes the patterns as a splat and that the splat is unique. It gives birth to a design on glass or silk or panels. Imagine a man screwing up a piece of paper and tossing the paper on a table, then examining and re-examining the paper before hitting upon an idea for what shape the roof of a museum could be. The man is architect Frank Garrick and the paper becomes the pattern of the roof of the Guggenheim Museum in Bilboa. Although it could have also been inspirational in the design of the Dancing House in Prague or the Walt Disney Concert Hall in downtown Los Angeles. Lindy Lee scratched with wax, Frank Garrick with paper, Twyla Tharp scratches with anything, anywhere to get a starting point to something, somewhere that eventually becomes one of her 130-plus original dance choreographies. Some creative folk change their scenery in order to scratch. A uh, A trip to Firenze, Kathmandu or Timbuktu might be just the thing to fire the creative fingernails. After a failed album in 1983 called Hearts and Bones and a failed second marriage to actress Carrie Fisher... Singer-songwriter Paul Simon cured his supposed writer's block with a journey to the musical sounds and rhythms of South Africa. In 1986, he released the groundbreaking Graceland album, inspired by what he heard as he scratched his way around South Africa. Some folk travel the world and scratch the sounds, sights and tastes of diverse cultures. Others stay in their bedroom and scratch their bum, their posterior, in memory of past things. Their posterior, perhaps. French writer and philosopher Marcel Proust spent most of his time living in his bedroom of his parents' house, rarely straying from his cork-lined room. Cork-lined? Can anyone explain? Yet he still scratched his way to bucket loads of ideas that ended up in huge books that influenced many thousands of great minds. So whether we stay in and scratch our posterior, or go out and scratch the world, When you get a creative itch, scratch. Scratch until you find the inkling for the ink, the baby steps for the dance, the hint of the angel within the marble, the cabbie sentence that unravels the song. Creativity requires a tangible idea to get it going. So where do you scratch? Do you collect interesting newspaper clippings, listen to music that is not usually on your playlist, read competitively, Twyla Tharp says she reads competitively in memory of Mark Twain's line that the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Read broadly and read randomly. Visit galleries and art websites. Listen to the everyday talk of everyday folk in everyday lives full of everyday miracles. Get into the creative habit of scratching. Get into the creative habit of being a singing nun. How do you solve a problem like Maria? scratch. Then turn the ideas into other ideas. Brew them, chumba them, mix them into an everyday creativity, a, spri- a surprise for your kids, a gift for your partner, a new concept for your work. Perpetual scratcher Helen Keller, blind, deaf and speechless, wrote, make your life itself a creative work of art. Start scratching. Now, of course, there's more to the factions of creative actions than scratching alone. Maybe we also need to do some catching. Once we've done the scratching, catch stuff in your journals, and then we need to do some hatching. Put it to a purpose for a presentation or an idea to help folk to learn. So many lands are smart to play with. Develop a creative discipline in what you do. Utilizing your analytical smarts, enjoy your scratch, enjoy your magic ray.
0: Recently, I caught up with Leanne Christie of Ovation's Speakers and Trainers and O2 Speaker Management. Based in Sydney, Australia, many international speakers and trainers have worked with Leanne, who was the first International Bureau to receive the Helping Hands Award from the International Association, a Speakers Bureau. In our chat, Leanne shares her thoughts on how bureaus and speakers can best capitalize on the swings and roundabouts of the current climate. So you have been representing professional speakers and trainers throughout Asia Pacific for over
9: 22 years. Tell me, what's changed? Oh my gosh. All right, you're going to make me go back into the archives, (laughs) are you? 22 years a while, isn't it? Let's see. So, you know, Camille, we actually started out as a training bureau. So what's certainly changed over the years for me is the switch more from trainers to speakers and seeing the growth of professional speaking. There was definitely a, an industry for trainers, but not for professional speakers like today. I think, um, oh, I was just laughing with my team the other day about technology. So, for example, you know, 22 years ago, I'm telling them, I was sitting there on a Word document typing out my proposal, which I'd then properly put in the post and make a note seven days later to call the client to see if they'd received it. And when faxes came in, it was like, woohoo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we could turn it around in a couple of days. And now on email, you know, we have a, a minimum 24-hour response time. Of course, we have to get proposals back within 24 hours. And by the way, speaking to speakers now, understanding from our point of view, that's one of the reasons why. Well, so what trends are you noticing now? When I was talking to the team about it the other day, I was I was saying to them how proud I am of them for being so respectful of what's happening in the client corporations you know we work with the biggest international names whose head offices are here in australia and still their purse strings are tight what we need to realize is that we are assisting them with their precious pennies these are the pennies that they're investing in their people and they're precious ones aren't they and so To have some patience at the moment and be respectful that they are precious pennies, and where do we best invest that? Is it back into training or is it, you know, still a motivational speaker or uh, a subject matter expert? It's so important to get it right. I think that that's one of the things that we need to realize, all of us, you know, in the speaking industry and speakers, is that they are the precious pennies at the moment. And I think the ones that can help our clients use it the most wisely, they're going to be great relationships for the future, aren't they? That's so true. That's excellent. And what about in Asia?
0: Do you notice anything, any trends coming through?
9: (laughs) Well, part of me wants to to laugh because one of the biggest differences with working with big, it doesn't matter how big the companies are in Asia or small, there's a lot more negotiation, uh, whether you want to or not. And one of my... So boxes, as you know, I say at NSA, is your fee is your fee. And, you know, it's, it's not a place for a bureau to negotiate. So it's a great advantage for many speakers to have us working for them in the Asian region. But so I suppose that part in Asia hasn't changed. <laughs> One of the main things I'm talking to a global audience I like to say about Asia, although we mentioned that word, Asia is not a country, Camille. How different is Cambodia to Hong Kong? How different is the city of Singapore to uh, a city in Vietnam? To, yes. Hmm. We need to be very careful. If you haven't spent a lot of time in Asia... I'll just put that in as my Asia tip. Asia 101, it's not a country. And then we can go from there. <laughs> Fair enough. That's great. And our listeners need to know that, particularly
0: yes. if they're considering working and traveling or, or even visiting on a holiday, for that matter. Right. Now, I remember you speaking once at a chapter meeting about the importance of building a relationship with bureaus. Tell me a bit about that.
9: The way I see it is that bureaus are another sector. So when you are looking at your strategy, I suggest to speakers that what they do is look at bureaus as another sector. For example, there's the corporate sector, there's meeting planners, in Australia we call them PCOs or professional conference organisers, associations, government. Bureaus are another sector. Bureaus are not the answer to everything. And it's very good to just to make a conscious decision... Are bureaus part of my strategy? Are they a sector that I want to go after? Bureaus are not necessarily the answer, but they're a damn good friend to have. I mean, you've got access to what? It might be only 10 if you live in New Zealand or many hundreds if you're in the US of commission salespeople working for you. You do not pay for the wear and tear on the carpet. You don't pay for the phone calls. You don't pay for their holiday. You don't pay, you don't have to worry about training them. You don't, I mean, for me, that's great leverage. But like any commission salesperson, you still need to invest time in their product knowledge of you and also invest time in the relationship. Because See it like an insurance broker. An insurance broker could sell this insurance or that insurance which is why many insurance companies do extra Mm
0: -hmm.
9: product knowledge training or incentives or whatever they do for, yeah, for their um, salespeople. I see see bureaus as that. And sometimes I think it's a shame, you know, some people see bureaus, uh, bureaus as the enemy. If you don't like the rules of a bureau, do it yourself. That's fine. It's just a choice. And another thought, again, because we're talking to a global audience here. Hello, everybody in South Africa. When you want to work internationally, or if you decide to work internationally, again, it's another strategy. Be selective. Decide. Be conscious. Do or don't. Don't just try to fall into it or not. And so make sure that you're relevant. I find that sometimes speakers must, I don't know whether they can just buy a list of bureaus or something, but I get this information from speakers internationally somebody who's thousands of miles away who's like a four thousand dollar speaker on sales well guess what Yeah, you know, we have about um i have got like 1500 speakers based in australia on my database i think i have one or two that already speak on sales i don't have to bring somebody from michigan to do that so be relevant be relevant the best way you can be relevant and speaking for us is if you're coming to our area that makes you relevant so if you're already coming to visit an Asian country or Australia New Zealand, please be in touch with plenty of notice. Let us know that when you're coming. Send us your beautiful bureau-friendly materials. And you'll notice on our website we have a section called Visiting Internationals. That alone could get you a job just putting you out there to our clients, but also the team will be able to keep you in mind. And it's a great strategy for picking up add-on sales, isn't it?
0: People need to know how to approach the Bureau, so that's, that's great. Yeah. Thanks, Leanne. In the industry or for professional speakers, what kind of challenges do
9: you see going forward? In this economy, you must be relevant to what is happening now. General stuff will not cut it. Again, back to our precious pennies. Briefing is more important than ever before. Slice it down. Exactly where is the pain? You know, we can't be just doing general medicine. We must be specialists. Exactly where is the pain? Exactly where are we going to cut? Exactly where am I going to apply the pressure? I think relevance is our number one right now. And if you think of what a client will get, if you could be very relevant with those precious pennies and give them something that's going to help them now, you're going to be one of their best friends for a long time. It's one of the best ways for you to build your business.
0: Thank you, Leanne, for sharing so many fantastic words with us. And hello
9: to all the speakers out there worldwide.
0: <laughs> Thanks. If you've been on the road a lot, you want to tune in to this next segment on virtual presenting with futurist and certified speaking professional Craig Rispin. Wow, no more jet lag, airport queues.
7: Conferences and presenting. Recently in Australia, two telecommunication executives presented live on stage together, but one executive wasn't even in the same state. Meanwhile, a keynote speaker delivered a presentation via Skype video conference to an audience of 3,000 halfway around the world, and Oprah delivered a worldwide weekly seminar series using the same technology. This might not sound like Keynote speaking to you, but technology is transforming our clients' conferences and training, and slowly and steadily transforming the leading edge of our speaking industry, too. Now, you might enjoy commercial air travel and airport security lines, so just skip over this segment if you don't want to know how to present virtually at a conference this year, and get paid to do it, too. Just hit skip now. Okay, for the rest of you that have decided to stay with us, let's discuss the specifics. The Aussie telecommunication executives were using a high-end virtual conference system from a British company, Museum Eyeliner, whose website is eyeliner3d.co.uk. Their system can project your image life-size and in high-definition glory on a stage using a special transparent screen. You can even interact on stage with other presenters at the remote venue. Vice President Al Gore uses technology to speak to the live Earth's audience in London from Tokyo. And Target used the same system to present a fashion parade without models at a virtual fashion show in New York last year. When you present using this system, you're videoed in a studio, but you can see and hear your audience and other people on the stage at the remote venue using a two-way system. Now, this system adds to the conference costs by several tens of thousands of dollars right now, but for the right conference and client, this might be the solution you could suggest. It's very handy if you couldn't possibly be in two countries at the same time. Another company called DVE has a solution called a virtual podium or lectern. Their website is dvetelepresence.com. Their system only delivers you from your waist up behind a lectern, but it's pretty spectacular when used properly. If you're a presenter that uses a lot of PowerPoint or Keynote slideshows, this is a great option. Remember the Asian SARS scare in 2003? It almost canceled all financial conferences in Hong Kong because some international executives were banned from traveling to the HK during that time. But one enterprising conference organizer used DVE's virtual podium to beam in executives from all over the world instead of flying them in. The conference was still held virtually with audiences and presenters from all around the globe. If air travel is ever disrupted again, we really do have technological alternatives to retain our income if we think creatively and use technology. Now, your meeting planner might not have the budget or technical resources for these high-end systems, but maybe they would be open to using the system that Oprah uses, namely Skype. Its cost is minimal, just a couple of laptops and a fast Internet connection at both ends. In fact, Skype video conferencing is perfect way to begin practicing virtual presentations or for smaller conferences with a limited budget. It's also a great way to beam yourself into a corporate boardroom. Why not get started by running a mastermind group meeting using Skype? That way you could get used to the technology and try some new things in a trusted environment. You can add slideshows and whiteboard capabilities to a Skype video call too. Try Yugma, that's Y-U-G-M-A dot com, or or Persony, And for the truly virtual world, some presenters are getting paid to deliver keynotes in virtual worlds such as Second Life and online virtual conferences and trade shows. These are just starting to emerge, but keep an eye on them because, you never know, they might need you to present. Will you be ready when the call comes? I've personally used most of these systems, and I know others that have too. Meeting organizers are usually very open to these options to save on travel costs and to set their meetings apart from their competition with a technological angle. Why don't you get started with Skype and gain some experience, then move up to the more expensive systems as your clients' budgets allow? Alternatively, you could add some more commercial travel time to your schedule. Then again, maybe not. This is Craig Rispin, and I'll see you presenting virtually online.
0: My feature interview this month was recorded almost a year ago. However, I felt the topic was still very timely. Please join Randy Gage and I on creating a prosperity consciousness. Now you've been dubbed the millionaire messiah. And I know you talk a lot about the prosperity consciousness. Tell me a little bit about the prosperity consciousness and and what do speakers need to know about that?
10: As far as our profession, it's uh, relevant to other ones, but it's how big of a window do you see the world in? When you set your keynote fee, when you decide how to price your products or your coaching program or your consulting services, are you buying into limiting beliefs about, uh, well, what does this cost to dead cost to produce and I should price it that way or are you thinking about okay what is the value that I'm providing to the universe and what would be a fair exchange of value for me to get so that really is about consciousness
0: and so how does someone get a positive prosperity consciousness Uh,
10: I just know what I did I spent 30 minutes a day every day in positive self development stuff reading books, listening to tapes and then later CDs, watching DVDs, but stuff that grew my consciousness. Uh, I don't believe you can read As a Man Thinketh for 30 minutes in the morning and be the same person later in the day. I don't think you can read the Think and Grow Rich or The Magic of Thinking Big and have the same view of the world Uh, when you go out that day. You you vibrate at a different consciousness. You're going to attract different results if you've done that positive. And of course this is all really scientific based on how we program our subconscious mind. Our subconscious mind doesn't critique, it doesn't analyze, it just does whatever it's programmed to do. So when we, what I was doing with my 30 minutes a day, and I think we all can do that, is we, we make a conscious determination on how to program our subconscious mind with the outcomes we want to have, with the kind of person we want to become, the things we want to do, have, and become, and uh, that changes our results out there in the world.
0: And you also mentioned in your workshop about a dream board. That's obviously another thing that you do?
10: Yeah, I call mine my prosperity manifestation map, and I put on things there that I want to do, have, or become. And it doesn't have to mean anything to anyone else, because you don't show it to other people. Because, let's face it, there's a lot of negative people who would just ridicule your thing. But it could be, you could put uh, two rings there if you wanted to manifest a relationship, as long as you know what that means. could be the dream car you want to get, the dream home you want to live in. For speakers, I, you know, put the, if you want your book to be a New York Times bestseller, put the list up there and put your name and your title at the top of it. If you want to be on Oprah, get a picture of Oprah with somebody on the couch and then cut off that person and put a picture of you with Oprah. You know, whatever it is you want to do create some kind of image that your subconscious mind knows what that means. And then every time you walk by, even though it's just in your peripheral vision, it still makes an impression and you need hundreds or sometimes thousands of impressions on your subconscious mind for things to really take and then uh, that becomes your, your self-fulfilling prophecy because your subconscious mind causes you to take the actions to manifest that in reality.
0: Out of everything that you do, and we're, we're, we're talking about keynotes, blog, your books, your CDs, on and on and on. What do you think has worked the best for getting your message out?
10: The Internet just has made this whole world such a little village that stuff gets out there so fast so I've been good about the internet even though I'm not a technology person I made sure I had a website I have a newsletter I recently started a blog I'm always in contact with people that want to be in contact with me so that has been huge for me and the other thing would be uh, what I call a magalog meaning a catalog that uh, looks like a magazine and I've done a couple sessions for that at NSA so people could look up those if they want to know more but in terms of a branding piece, I don't think anything could brand you as well as a magalog because it's just such a credibility piece to have a 24 page or 36 page magazine with articles by you and great content. and Then you have your books and CDs and other things in there or your consulting service or whatever, but it's it's such a dramatic credibility piece and I've, I've done several of those over the course of my career. And those were were, were huge for me in terms of uh, really getting out in the market.
0: And so you send those out to clients, prospective clients, or?
10: Yeah, what we, uh, I was getting very high fees for a keynote speech when I didn't even have a demo video and everybody would say you could never get those fees without a demo video but i was getting it cuz i had this magalog and so we would send people the magalog and the one page that had the fee uh, topics or the fees the, you know the amount of the speeches and the speech names and this magalog and they just like wow this guy looks like he knows what he's doing let's bring him in for our event
0: Okay, so that's interesting. So it's kind of a a randy bio. This is everything I do. This is who I am. These are the products I have just in a magazine.
10: Yeah, but it's done as a value to the reader. Right. So you have the topic. uh, So let's say you're an etiquette coach. So you create a magazine about etiquette, and you're the definitive expert in the field because you're the one who's writing all the articles and then you have this recommended resources section and that section and that's got your cds or your dvds or your public seminar offerings or coaching program or whatever but it's the kind of thing the idea of a magalog is that it has a shelf life Mm. catalog you get a catalog in the mail you either buy from it or you don't either way you do whichever one and then you throw it away A Magalog you want to fill with all kind of sidebars and information and ten tips to this and helpful articles of that so it stays on their desk or on their coffee table or in their office. It gets passed around in an organization. In my case I buy every CD album and special report and DVD of everybody. You know I'm a a voracious learner. And I like they just stack up and stack up and stack up in my uh, office. And then I take a weekend and I go to Key West and I just load up a box. I drive, you put it in the car, I drive down to Key West, which is from Miami Beach to Key West, one of the most spectacular drives in the world. And then I get down there, and I just got a little bungalow by the beach, and I just go through the books and the uh, binders and the CD albums. And a lot of times I'll, I'll read 15 pages of a book and decide it's a piece of garbage and throw it away. I'll listen to the first 10 minutes of a CD and say, okay, this isn't worth it. I'll throw you know, just discard it. We through a bunch of junk but usually there's always some idea of value in just about anything there's books you're gonna get an idea just reading the dust jacket That say that's a great idea how can can I extrapolate that and and apply it in my business so I do a weekend like that uh, probably four or five times a year which is just a mastermind with myself and all these authors where I can just process all this information and then I get through it all. And then the last day, I'm just sitting by the pool or I'm sitting in the ocean with my feet in there and I'm just journaling. Okay, what would be a great you know concept for my next book? What would be the next CD album? What would be a great public seminar program? What's the next thing for me? But that's because I give myself some time to learn to sharpen my own saw and then to process that. The most influential book in my entire life was Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and I reread that every year or year and a half. As a man thinketh, it's one of these little tiny books that you buy for like $4 at Barnes & Noble that I I almost wish they charged $50,000 for it because If they did, I think people would read it with the reverence that it really deserves. I just read that over and over and over again because I think it's just timeless Mm. uh, insights into how to utilize the power of the mind to to manifest the things we want to create in our lives.
0: And so this takes us back to creating prosperity.
10: You cannot be treated for prosperity. You have to be open to receiving it so it's really about developing that consciousness so it's eliminating the negative programming that's influencing your subconscious mind it's identifying limiting beliefs that you have that money is bad or rich people are evil or you know women get paid less than men or you should be a nurse instead of a doctor because women you know are not doctors they're nurses whatever the kind of garbage you get programmed with when you're young so you identify those limiting beliefs and you need to eviscerate them then you've got to replace them with positive empowering beliefs, beliefs that are going to serve you. And then you've got to keep a reprogramming yourself with the positive programming so you don't, because we're all going to get infected with negative programming, no matter what you do. There's just, with the newspaper, the TVs, the radio, the internet, email, there's always, you're being assaulted with negative programming, whether you choose to or not. Uh-huh. People. So you've, yeah, people, definitely. So you've got to counter-program against that. So I still believe in the 30 minutes a day self-development in the morning, kind of create your consciousness before you ever go out in the day.
0: So what's your legacy?
10: My legacy is I believe, uh, I hope that millions and millions of people will be touched by my message to understand they are meant to be healthy, happy, and prosperous, and they will accept the abundance that is truly meant for them.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much.
10: (laughs) Thanks for
8: having me.
0: From where I stand on the platform as a corporate MC, my research often takes me to presenters' websites, where I glean tidbits to customize segues, introductions, and thank yous. Sometimes, I'm just having a sticky beak, sticking my beak in to have a look around, just like your clients do. At a recent conference, the organizer expressed surprise at how dissimilar the photos on a speaker's website were to him in the flesh. I think it had something to do with hair, or the lack thereof. In another instance, a meeting planner I know quickly needed some fresh marketing content to bump up attendee numbers. She found one presenter's website with the latest article entry dating 1995. If your website and other collateral is older than the starfish story, it's time to get real. Photographers recommend ladies' photos be updated every three years, and for the gents, every five. As for articles and content, with a bit of tweaking, your expertise and fresh perspective will shine even while you sleep. On behalf of the VOE team, thanks for joining us and do stay in touch. This is Camille Valvo reminding you to keep it real.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.